Hello and welcome to News Ads, coming to you live from the BBC World Service in London. I'm Tim Franks. In a moment, is time running out for Jacob Zuma? The grandees of South Africa's governing ANC discuss whether the country's president should be forced out early. A little later on the programme, we'll hear of allegations of abuse made by Ethiopian workers forced to leave Saudi Arabia. I was detained for 11 days before being deported back home. I know lots of people who went insane because of this torment. The prison cell I was put into was so dirty that some of us were severely sick. It was like a toilet. As if this was not enough, we were robbed of our belongings. I came here with nothing. We'll also hear about a row in the Australian art world, a trial in the Middle East that could turn on the definition of terrorism, and what tiny plastics are doing to marine giants. First, though, Jacob Zuma. He's a man of many things to many people. The South African president has been a totem of the struggle against apartheid, spending years in prison alongside Nelson Mandela. For some... He's also become, since assuming the top job in 2009, the symbol of institutionalised corruption of a government in hock to private interests. Where there's less division is over his reputation as a great survivor. This week, though, that survival is being put to perhaps the toughest test to date. And it comes from what is notionally his own side, as senior members of the governing ANC have spent the day meeting to discuss his position. Mr Zuma's term as president is due to expire next year. The question is whether the corruption allegations hanging over him should compel him to leave early. One of those at today's meeting was the president of the ANC's Youth League, Colin Maini. He proved to be a reluctant interviewee when my colleague Razi Iqbal spoke to him earlier. I'm telling you that I allowed the ANC the space to deal with its issues without you interfering. Well, I'm not interfering. I'm merely asking you to set out your position, not to tell me what you will say in the meeting, but at least to set out your position. The position position will be then dealt with within the structures of the ANC. Why should I tell England what I'm going to say? Why not your colony? Colin Maini keeping his counsel and telling Razi Iqbal to mind her own business. Would the ANC's communications manager, Kusili Diko, be more communicative? In the National Working Committee and within the National Executive Committee of the ANC, there have been discussions as it relates to President Zuma, as well as his continued stay in government. There has been no resolution at this point that says we must uh, request President Zuma to resign or to recall him. Comrade President Jacob Zuma remains the President of the Republic. He obviously would not be President of the Republic if we did not uh, have confidence in him. However, we are quite aware of the challenges uh, and allegations that surround uh, his position as president of the state, and that is the issues that we are dealing with. The latest we're hearing is that the National Executive Committee of the ANC will now meet on Wednesday to try to thrash out a united position to present President Zuma. William Gumede is Associate Professor at the School of Governance at the uh, University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. What does he expect these ANC leaders to decide? You know, the decision has really been made by the top leadership of the ANC, what we call the top six, that's sort of, you know, the ANC president downwards to the deputy general secretary of the ANC. They've decided that Jacob Zuma has to go, and that Jacob Zuma has to go preferably before 
8th of February when we have in South Africa the State of the Nation Address where the state president gives his or her view of the government's program for the next year. What is happening now is um, today is the emergency meeting of the National Working Committee of the ANC. What they will do is that they will recommend to the National Executive Committee of the ANC, which is another body, which is, which is actually the decision-making body, to go ahead, you know, along two ways. One way, either for impeachment or a different route, to go for a vote of no confidence within the ANC's National Executive Committee of the ANC. So I think that's going to be the, the recommendation. Is it a tactical error by Cyril Ramaphosa and the current ANC leadership to have this deadline of February the 8th then? I wouldn't say it was a tactical error, but well, I think... they can't deliver under- on it, it is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But they underestimated, they taught, I think, yesterday when they went to Jacob Zuma, because they went to see Jacob Zuma late last night at Jacob Zuma's official residence, and they spoke to him in his own, in his living room. And they had, they, I think, underestimated, they taught that Jacob Zuma will see reason and resign voluntarily, because that's, that's the first prize. I mean, that is, you know, the, the strategy of, of Ramaphosa, the new ANC leader. Now, I think there's a, a miscalculation that, that they, I think that they underestimated the desperation of Jacob Zuma to stay in the state presidency. If he stays in the state presidency, it, he would be able to control and store any invest, uh, corruption investigation into him. How much support does Jacob Zuma have inside the ANC at the moment? Well... Jacob Zuma is calculating that because the ANC's December conference that elected the new leadership, including Mr. Ramaphosa, at that conference it was quite clear that he at least has under 50% of the, close to 50% of the vote. So that at least that the ANC National Executive Committee is divided 50, almost 50-50 between Jacob Zuma supporters and um, Sir Ramaphosa supporters. So that has emboldened Jacob Zuma, and it has also made Ramaphosa very cautious because if Ramaphosa had an overwhelming majority, he would have fired um, Jacob Zuma almost immediately after the December conference. But because it's such a narrow divide between the two groups of supporters in the ANC's national leadership, you know, Ramaphosa has been cautious. He's been negotiating with Jacob Zuma and his allies within the ANC's top leadership, and he hasn't fired Jacob Zuma directly yet. There are reports that Jacob Zuma wants some sort of guarantee of immunity or at least perhaps a pardon were he to face some convictions for corruption. Is that in Cyril Ramaphosa's gift? You know, it's not. So in the meeting, as I understand from my own sources, in the, yesterday's meeting where Jacob Zuma was asked by the top six leadership of the ANC to leave, to resign voluntarily, Jacob Zuma has countered. He's countered it. At the most basic, he wants immunity from prosecution. Now, in South African law, that is very difficult. It is not in the gift of Cyril Ramaphosa, nor in the new leadership of the ANC, because in South African law, you could, you could get a presidential pardon but that's only after you have been convicted of a crime. And then second, there's a second route that you can go through the parliamentary route that you can get uh, immunity, but that is, it means a change of the constitution and it means a two-thirds majority vote in in the national parliament. It would, it would mean, because the ANC doesn't have the majority, it would mean that almost all of the ANC members vote in favour of it and that all of the opposition parties vote for it. Now, right now, that really is very unlikely. William Gumedi speaking to me from Johannesburg.
Saudi Arabia is a country fighting battles on many fronts, inside and outside its borders. But here's one that's not been getting much attention, the fight against economic migrants. A crackdown on undocumented workers is underway. Still, though, thousands of Ethiopians are trying to get into the kingdom in search of job opportunities. Ethiopian authorities say there could be as many as 600,000 of its citizens living illegally in Saudi and is working to bring them back home. But as the BBC's Emmanuel Ngudza reports from Addis Ababa, many of those coming back recount horrific stories at the hands of smugglers and immigration officials. It's a hive of activity outside the arrival terminal at the airport in Addis Ababa. In fact, there is more activity than usual. There are hundreds of newly arrived passengers, men and women, dragging along their luggage trolleys. Among them is a group of women all dressed in black hijabs and another group of men sitting quietly on the tarmac. Some don't have shoes and are clutching at paper bags with clothes stuffed inside. These are among thousands of workers who have been forced to leave Saudi Arabia because they don't have the right to work there. Most were deported after the latest deadline for them to leave expired last November. Sadiq Ahmed, a 34-year-old former teacher, is among the latest to arrive from Jeddah, where he has been living for more than five years. I was detained for 11 days before being deported back home. I know lots of people who went insane because of this torment. The prison cell I was put into was so dirty that some of us were severely sick. It was like a toilet. As if this was not enough, we were robbed of our belongings. I came here with nothing. So far, around 100,000 Ethiopians have returned home with the help of their government and the UN agencies. But many more are still stranded in Saudi Arabia, which has vowed to expel all undocumented workers. The kingdom has twice postponed a deadline for all those illegally there to leave. But as of November, it is said those who violate the deadline face long-term jail sentences. Well, the Ethiopian government estimates that there are about 600,000 of its citizens currently living and working in Saudi Arabia. But there are many more who are still attempting to get to Saudi Arabia, oblivious of the ongoing crackdown there and the dangers of such journeys, especially traveling through conflict-torn countries like Yemen. At a transit center in the capital, Addis Ababa, I met a group of about 25 young men. They all began their journey to Saudi Arabia last December and were shuttled from one network of smugglers to another, paying thousands of dollars in fees, but were arrested as soon as they landed there. After a week in prison, for some, this is the first decent meal in weeks. 22-year-old Mohammed Kedir says he saw some of his fellow passengers die when a boat they were in sank when traveling to Yemen. I thought I would die. I didn't know there was a war going on in Yemen. But now I'm glad I'm back home. My family is happy that I'm back here safe. I will never try such a journey again. I'll try and find something to do here. But why are so many young men risking their lives to get to Saudi Arabia despite the ongoing crackdown? Morena Ching is the regional head of the UN's International Organization for Migration. We know that a lot of migrants are being tricked into making the crossing into uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, through Yemen because there is a raging war in Yemen and there is no um, state control whatsoever. So smugglers are telling would-be migrants that this is a good time to make the crossing because there's no, nobody who will stop you in Yemen. There's no controls whatsoever.
But for those returning to Ethiopia, the challenge is finding them jobs to stop them wanting to travel abroad. Unfortunately, um, Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabia caseload of returnees has not um, got the attention we had hoped they would get from the international community in terms of support. So there's been very little um, um, uh, possibility for IOM to provide them with reintegration support beyond the initial um, transportation money that we give them. There's very little else. At this point, we are in a position to give. Well, the government says it is doing all it can to create opportunities for millions of these job seekers. But with the unemployment rate still high in Ethiopia, dangerous journeys abroad will continue. Emmanuel Agunza reporting from Addis Ababa. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. Coming up on the programme, we'll hear about the battle of the big tech giants, Uber and Waymo, colliding in court. Is it more than just a technical dispute? There seems to be an effort here to tell more of a story of nefarious doings, which actually could end up benefiting Waymo because they want to paint Uber as an evil corporation that spies on its rivals and conducts its business underhandedly. We'll be looking at that story in 30 minutes. Uh, a couple of headlines to bring you. There's been a dramatic fall in share prices in the United States. Uh, we'll be considering why and uh, just how big it's been in uh, about 30 minutes. And um, aid workers say an offensive by Turkey in northern Syria has trapped thousands of people along the border. One other headline, it's a story we've been looking at. The leaders of South Africa's governing ANC have called a meeting of the party's top decision-making body as President Jacob Zuma continues to defy appeals to step down. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC. I'm Tim Franks. The time has come, said the European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, today, for the UK to choose what sort of relationship it wants with the EU when it leaves the club in just over a year. Mr Barnier made the observation after talks in Downing Street with the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, and the senior Brexit minister, David Davis. The particular point of contention at the moment is the British desire to leave what's called the Customs Union, the system which ensures EU member states all charge the same import duties on goods brought in from countries outside the Union. That then allows the EU members to trade freely with each other without a lot of further customs checks. I asked our political correspondent Rob Watson to explain. In many ways, Tim, the the British government's position hasn't really changed. It said it wants to leave the customs union, but that it also wants to have utterly or as frictionless as possible trade with the European Union after it leaves, which, of course, some have described as the have-your-cake-and-eat-it approach. Right. So have they actually come up with a firm proposal of how they're going to square those two things? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, they have made a couple of suggestions. One, that some some fantastic new customs partnership, a bit of blue sky thinking has agreed with the European Union, or, or that it's done through fantastic use of technology and clever things such as having agreements that there are some companies where, of course, you trust them. You're not going to need to have new inspections. But it is, of course, massively, massively contentious. And I think 
think to perhaps just quickly kind of boil it down, what the Brexiteers argue is, look, if you're inside the EU customs union, it's the EU that negotiates free trade deals, whether that's with Japan, Britain doesn't do it, the individual members of the EU don't, don't, don't do it, the EU does. And they're saying Britain should be able to get on and make these trade deals with parts of the world that are growing more than Europe. But of course... The Remainers argue, and it has to be said, most businesses, most economists, most trade experts, so that is completely crazy, and that there are no easy free trade deals to be had out there, and, and that in any case, uh, regulatory barriers are, are more problematic even than uh, import tariffs. How far is this likely to be sorted out when, I mean, we keep on talking about these things, these key cabinet subcommittees uh, meeting to thrash out exactly what the uh, precise British government approach is going to be, but supposedly that's going to be happening later this week. How likely will we get a, a strong readout from that? I mean, I'm sure we'll get a readout, but is this going to be the great denouement? I suspect not, because essentially the, the governing Conservative Party is paralysed by its divisions uh, over Europe with essentially one faction, the Brexiteers, who wants as clean a break from the EU as possible, and those who were on the Remain side during the campaign who want to stay as close as possible. And, and I suspect that what the Prime Minister will try and do is to keep these two sides together as possible by, yes, the cake-and-eat-it strategy, by saying, look, we really do want to leave the customs union, the single market, we want this new free trade policy around the world, uh, but we also want to stay very close to, to the Europeans and of course I, I guess crunch time will come Tim when when the European Union either says yay or nay to that and then clearly decisions will have to be made. And the final time frame for that is what? So this, this transition agreement should be agreed by, by March but the really key date I guess to watch is, is, is October where that's when the European Union and Britain say they want to have an arrangement about their future relationship. Rob Watson on the latest machinations, negotiations, call them what you will, probably ends in eations, uh, on Brexit. In Australia, a row has broken out over the country's entry into next year's Venice Biennale, the prestigious international art exhibition. For years, a small circle of curators and a commissioner have selected and invited artists to take part. This time, the artists have to put in an application. Some of them see it as a chance they otherwise wouldn't have, uh, otherwise had, to represent their country. But some of the wealthy patrons and power brokers are not happy. As Sydney correspondent Howell Griffith has this report. Summer in Sydney doesn't just mean beaches and barbecues. It's also time for the city's annual arts festival. Now, the programme here offers everything from dinosaur sculptures made with discarded toys to a burlesque show by men with beards. Something to suit, well, almost every taste. But there are changes happening in the Australian arts world which some of its biggest donors find pretty unpalatable. This is a very high-profile gig for an Australian artist. Um, it needs to be someone who has been well considered by a panel of curators. Over the years, businessman Simon Mordant has put a lot of his own cash into backing Australia's entry into the prestigious Venice Biennale. He served as the country's commissioner for four years. Now that role has been scrapped and the selection process changed, with artists having to apply for the job, much to his disgust. Most 
eligible artists who could do the job um, are extremely busy. They're not going to respond to a newspaper advert um, suggesting that represent Australia, and they're not going to want to be disappointed by not being selected, having made the effort. Isn't that just pandering to people's uh, ego a little bit, making them feel special? Isn't it more democratic, say, stick an advert in the paper and anyone can apply? I think representing Australia at the Venice Biennale is the peak of any Australian artist's career. It's not about democracy. Grant-making may be about democracy, but commissions, which the Venice Biennale is about, is not about democracy. It's about selecting someone that you think represents Australia and makes a statement about something today. Simon Mordant is one of two patrons to withdraw financial support, criticising the Australian Council for the Arts for failing to consult with them. The Council says the changes were necessary to fit with Biennale rules and says the response from artists has been overwhelming. Now, if you think that all sounds like a row within the upper echelons of the art establishment, you'd probably be right. So what, if anything, do Aussie art fans make of it? I've come down to the rocks in Sydney's harbour to find out. I ventured up an old staircase above a cookery shop to find an art class of enthusiastic amateurs finishing off their paintings. Few have actually heard about this row, but many like the thought of getting to represent their country. I love the idea because then maybe I have a chance. You reckon you could do it? I could give it a go. I would give it a go. Even if I wasn't ready, I would give it a go. I feel like it potentially can be a bit of a closed world. Um, so any little door that opens is, is a great thing. Very fine likeness. And I like the, the way you've retained the coolness. The man in charge of the art class, Paul Del Prat, is less certain. He's keen to point out the role of the rich patron throughout art history. They have an equal passion to the people who create and they are an invaluable part of the art equation. And I'm talking about the benefactors. It goes back, of course, far beyond uh, the great Lorenzo de' Medici, who was really the great patron of Michelangelo, Leonardo, so many of the great painters. If you don't have a bit of money in your pocket, you can't really buy art. You can't collect art. Who represents Australia in the 2019 Venice Biennale will be announced in the coming weeks. But this art world stoush, as Australians like to call it, is likely to rumble on. And one of the many things I will take away from that piece from Hal Griffith is the new word I learned, stoush. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. There'll be uh, plenty more illumination. I can't promise uh, new words, but uh, do stay with us in the next 30 minutes of the programme. Next on NewsHour, we'll hear about the uh, trial of a teenager which is gripping Israelis and Palestinians. First business news, and a trial has begun in San Francisco which pits two of the biggest players in self-drive technology against each other. The ride-sharing firm Uber is being sued by Waymo, the self-driving company spun out of Google. Andrew Hawkins is the transportation reporter for the US tech news website The Verge. 
So Waymo is accusing Uber of stealing its trade secrets related to its self-driving car project. They say that there were over 100 trade secrets that were stolen when Uber acquired a company called Auto, which was uh, founded by a former Google engineer named Anthony Lewandowski. Lewandowski is accused by Waymo of stealing around 14,000 documents and bringing them over to his new post at Uber, which Uber then used allegedly to start its own self-driving car project. What's Uber's defense? So Uber's defense is that it never actually ended up using any of these alleged trade secrets. It said that it paid for Lewandowski's company and his expertise fair and square. But then it sort of regrets that decision now. It says that Lewandowski was not a trustworthy person. It regrets hiring him. They've since fired him. Uh, Lewandowski is expected to take the Fifth Amendment to plead his right not to self-incriminate. And it seems like what this sort of all really boils down to is that this is a brand new technology. It's not really in use commercially yet, but we're already starting to see big, huge companies, multi-billion dollar companies like Google and Uber fighting over the rights and jockeying for space in the race to develop these cars. This is an industry that's expected to be worth trillions of dollars someday, potentially shaping, reshaping the way that people get around, reshaping the transportation sector. And we're seeing these companies now really sort of coming to blows over the the position that they have in the race to develop these cars. I'm sure you're super qualified to cover a case like this, but I just wonder if you are talking about things that are very, very high-tech, how much of a challenge it's going to be for the jury to wade through all this evidence. I think that's a really good point, and I think we saw some of that uh, happening with the the jury selection process when Uber and, and Waymo both seemed to be interested in eliminating some of the jurors that had technical expertise, had expertise uh, with uh, some of these different sensors that are used by by self driving cars. There seems to be an effort here to tell more of a story of uh, sort of nefarious doings and less so of a technical story, which actually could end up benefiting Waymo if that's the case, because they want to paint Uber as an evil corporation that spies on its rivals and conducts its business sort of underhandedly. Uber is obviously going to say, we realize that we have a bad reputation to overcome and we've ousted our CEO. Kalanick is gone at this point. The board has been restructured. We have a new CEO. We're turning the page. It's going to be really up to Waymo to make the the case to to the jury to see if they actually end up buying that argument. Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter for the US tech news website The Verge, talking about that uh, trial being heard in San Francisco just got underway, which pits Waymo against Uber. You're listening to News Hour, live from the BBC in London. I'm Tim Franks. What counts as terrorism? It's a common enough question, usually based on the ideological motivation of an action. But in this case, also the level of violence. In particular, can a slap be construed as an act of terrorism? A 16-year-old Palestinian girl, Ahed Tamimi, is to go on trial in a week's time in an Israeli military court for a range of security offences after she tried to eject two Israeli soldiers from her family's property during a demonstration last month. She slapped one of the men when he wouldn't go. Her mother, Naraman, videoed what happened. When it went viral, amid a storm of anger in Israel at what Ahad Tamimi had done, soldiers raided their home and took mother and daughter into custody. Now they've both been charged with offences that usually carry stiff jail sentences. 
It's a small incident, but for both sides, an emblem of an occupation that has lasted 50 years. Our Middle East editor, Jeremy Bowen, reports from the Tamimi's home village of Nebisale on the Israeli-occupied West Bank. I'm on a hill in Nebisale, a Palestinian village on the occupied West Bank, about 45 minutes north of Jerusalem. From this hill, I can see a microcosm of the conflict, a neighbouring Palestinian village where clouds of tear gas are rising from a minor clash, then across the valley, an Israeli military base and a Jewish settlement, illegal under international law. And behind me is the home of Ahed Tamimi, who's become a symbol of the conflict for both sides. Her mother, Nariman, filmed her slapping the Israeli soldier. And Ahed's father, Bassam, a leading Palestinian activist here, is contemplating the fact that his wife and daughter are facing charges that carry years of jail time. It's hard for me as a father and as a husband that my wife, my daughter, in the hands of my enemy, I am scared, worried, proud. It's like knives in my heart, in my body. Uh, you know, a lot of Israelis have said, in any country, if you attack a soldier, you face the consequences, even end up in jail. They're saying that she shouldn't have done this. What she should have done under the occupation? To give them a rose and welcoming them, I think our responsibility and duty to resist. She should do what she'd done, because it's the normal react against a hard man come to your home. The occupation destroy her childhood. She grows up, she feels responsible. The worst issue that the, the occupation is continue, and she will go out of jail to continue the struggle. And maybe she will kill. One reason why the confrontation between Ahed Tamimi, the other women, and those Israeli soldiers has caught the imagination of so many people here on both sides is because of what it says about the conflict, about the imbalance of power. A young, very angry, unarmed Palestinian demonstrator facing a heavily armed Israeli soldier. It's a symbol of the fact that despite Israel's enormous advantage in terms of force, weapons, international support, Palestinians aren't prepared to go away or give up. This village, Nebisala, is steeped in protest against the occupation. They have regular demonstrations here which often end up in stone throwing, tear gas, rubber bullets, live ammo too. Everybody in the village has been affected by the occupation. There is no occupation. There is no Palestinian nation. There will never be Palestinian state. And we didn't conquer nothing. We don't occupy nothing. Some Israelis are horrified about the prospect of jailing a 16-year-old for a slap. But many more support the soldiers, who could be their sons or brothers. In Jerusalem, here at Israel's parliament, the Knesset, a leading right-wing MP, Oren Hazan, goes much further. Let's talk specifically about Ahed Tamimi and her case. She's going to go to court very soon. Potentially she faces time in prison. I hope so. We need to send her to rehab, to rehab from terror. We need to put her behind bars, but we need to teach her how to act. You talk about her like she's just some innocent girl that just slept to a soldier. She do it for many years. She slept to soldier. She throws stones on soldier. She moved information to terrorists since she was a kid. When you saw that video of her slapping the soldier, what went through your mind? If I was there, 
she would finish in the hospital, for sure. Nobody could stop me. I would kick, kick her face. Believe me. She's a 16-year-old girl. No, I don't look at it like this. Because today, as a 16-year-old girl, she punched a soldier. Tomorrow, she will stuck a knife in his throat. This is what she do. Today, it's a slap. Tomorrow, it's a knife. We need to stop it. This family needs to be punished and punished hard. The chances are that Ahed Tamimi and her mother will end up with jail sentences. The Israeli military courts usually convict. The occupation has been going on for 50 years and it shows no sign of ending. Incidents like this indicate the level of tension and anger that's often just below the surface. The question is how long before, once again, it erupts into much more serious violence. Jeremy Byrne reporting from uh, Israel and the West Bank. Now, four years ago, a British internet security consultant was arrested and accused of stealing information from the US Central Bank, from NASA and from the FBI. Ever since then, Lowry Love has been fighting extradition to the United States. Today, Mr Love said he was greatly relieved that the High Court in London had ruled against that extradition to the United States, where he could have been jailed for 99 years. The judges judges ruled that a trial and conviction overseas could be oppressive, as they put it, based on the 33-year-old being prone to depression and having Asperger's syndrome. Deborah Tucker is with the Asperger's Syndrome Foundation in the United Kingdom. What's her reaction to the court's decision? I think it's a very good thing. He's not been extradited because it means that the courts are listening to what it's like to live with an autistic spectrum disorder on a daily basis and are taking that into account and realising that sending him away would be disastrous. Why? Because somebody with Asperger's or an autistic spectrum disorder suffers from all sorts of anxiety issues on a daily basis due to um, social interactions, social communication, flexibility of thought. So their experience of life is not straightforward like perhaps yours is, mine is and other people's are. In general, the question over how far people can be criminally responsible when they have, in English legal terms, diminished responsibility because of their mental condition, that's something that has been wrestled with for a very long time. What can Asperger's syndrome mean for that? It might well be very early on at school. He, Because he was different, he's been bullied, he's been excluded. That would lead to depression, that would lead to loneliness, that would lead to perhaps not being employed, a whole host of things. And from your experience, how significant can those impacts be from somebody who has the syndrome? If he doesn't get any kind of counselling to perhaps make sense of why he's here, some self-awareness of how he's got to the court, it could have a devastating effect. Um, well, loneliness and depression can lead to suicide. And, and those, I think, are what the, the, I'm certain his parents are probably concerned about. I get a lot of emails from parents in a similar situation with different cases, and that is their greatest fear, that prison is not the right place for somebody with autism or the Asperger's syndrome, and it's not actually going to help the situation. What needs to be done is other talking therapies to find out how the person got into the situation in the first place. For those of our audience who aren't quite 
certain about what the difference is between Asperger's and autism. Can you explain? People who are referred to as Asperger's are often referred to at the high end of the autistic spectrum, meaning that they function on a daily basis on a, in a different way to somebody who might be on the other end of the spectrum in terms of speech, for example. Somebody might not have any language at all. Are we at a point, do you think, where people are just much more willing to acknowledge that there are people out there who are on the autistic spectrum disorder range? I think people generally are more aware, teachers are more aware, uh, diagnosis is happening earlier, there are better interventions that can help to avoid what we're talking about today. Deborah Tucker from the Asperger's Syndrome Foundation in the UK. Some of the largest creatures in the oceans are threatened by some of the smallest particles of pollution. The culprit is microplastic. The potential victims are sharks, whales and rays. And according to researchers behind a new study published today, a lot more investigation needs now to be carried out. Maria Fossi is Professor of Biological Science at the University of Siena in Italy. We have developed this particular research starting in 2012 in the Mediterranean Sea when we consider for the first time the potential impact of microplastic on one of the largest filter feeders in the world, that is the fin whale. We have studied this species because we know that each time then a fin whale opens its mouth for their filter feeding activity, it can filtrate 70,000 litres of waters. That means that if an animal lives in a very polluted area, such as the Mediterranean Sea, that we know it's one of the most polluted areas of marine litter and particularly microplastic in the world, the potential exposure to the species, to the ingestion of microplastic, is very high. And what sort of damage can these microplastics cause? So uh, the direct link is not easy to identify, as you can imagine, because it's very difficult to study these animals. What we can obtain are a series of data. So we detect, uh, in one way, the presence of chemicals related to microplastic, and uh, some of these plastic additives that I mentioned, phthalate is the most famous one. But in the same way, you can measure also some toxicological effect. And the potential toxicological effect of this chemical are the endocrine disruptor effect that has potential link with the reproduction of the animals. We've known for a while that microplastics are a terrible nuisance in the oceans. Why are you saying that it matters particularly with these big creatures? Because presumably microplastics affect an awful lot of sea creatures. The question can be related in terms of the amount of microplastic that this big creature can assume during the filter feeding activity. A whale can filtrate each time that open the mound 700,000 litres of water. So if these species live in a very polluted environment of microplastic, the number of microplastic that a filter feeder can ingest daily is dramatically high. Maria Fossi, Professor of Biological Science at the University of Siena in Italy. This is NewsHour.
Of our top story this hour, leaders of South Africa's governing party have called a meeting of the party's main decision-making body as President Jacob Zuma continues to defy appeals to step down over allegations of corruption. Earlier, the political analyst William Gumidi told this programme it would be difficult for President Zuma to get what he appears to want, immunity from prosecution. You can go to the parliamentary route that you can get uh, immunity, but it means a change of the constitution and it means a two-thirds majority vote in, in the national parliament. Right now, that really is very unlikely. One other headline story from the BBC Newsroom, and we'll be looking at this in just a few moments. There's been a dramatic fall in share prices in the United States. This is NewsHour from the BBC. In Syria, the numbers killed in the war tick ever upwards. Air raids and artillery strikes from government forces and their allies are reported to have killed more than 40 people today in a rebel enclave close to Damascus and in the northwestern province of Idlib. And it's there in Idlib that medical workers have said that several people have been treated for breathing difficulties after a bomb believed to be filled with chlorine was dropped from a government helicopter. Hamish de Breton Gordon is a chemical weapons expert and advisor to many of the groups working to supply aid in Syria. Does he think the reports of this chemical attack are credible? I think they're very credible indeed. In fact, uh, the doctors you mentioned here are people that I have trained uh, to treat uh, people with uh, chemical injuries and also to collect evidence. So I have been in touch with them today. And in fact, over the last 10 days, we've seen extensive use of chlorine barrel bombs and chlorine rockets. So I've no doubt that the regime are using them. And uh, they've used them a lot before. It's, it's a classic tactic of theirs, and it's very successful. The well, use the- of chlorine barrel bombs broke the siege in Aleppo in December 16, and I think they're using the same method to break Idlib and uh, Ghouta in Damascus. Well, you talk about the collection of evidence, and I guess that could potentially be very important because, just to be clear, the use of chlorine is prohibited under the rules of war. It absolutely is. It was the first chemical weapon in the First World War. We then had a taboo of the use of chemical weapons for 100 years that was broken in Syria in 2013 when the Assad regime started to use them extensively. Sadly, the red line imposed uh, was only a theoretical red, red line. And I think after that, Assad believed that he could use chemical weapons as much as he liked. And um, the regime have used them. They have been successful. The the chlorine forces people out from underground where they're sheltering from the bombs and bullets and then makes them susceptible to that. And that's that's the psychological damaging thing that is breaking the will uh, of those uh, civilians to resist uh, anymore. So it's been very successful, particularly in these built-up areas. And I think that's why he uses it. And the fact that the international community did not impose that red line is we, we are paying for our weakness some um, four years ago. And it's, it is absolutely time now that members of the permanent, uh, the UN Security Council Permanent Five, like the United Kingdom, need to stand up to Russia and others to make sure that uh, chemical weapons are prohibited again and not used in the future. And yet, four years ago, I thought that um, Bashar al-Assad had declared that he was getting rid of all of his chemical weapons. 
Well, that's exactly right. It is now very clear that uh, he did not. I think those of us at the time thought that what he declared was a fairly small amount of what he probably had. And that's exactly the case. Of course, chlorine that he's using extensively now is readily available as a toxic chemical that's used in many industrial processes. But it is still a chemical weapon. In fact, I was speaking to some Russian officials only in the last week or so who seemed to think that chlorine was not a chemical weapon, but it is It is under the Chemical Weapons Convention, which the Russians and most other countries in the world have signed up to, to uh, prevent the use of uh, chemical weapons. But uh, as I think I, I, I said before, it is critical now that the leading members of the UN, the leading members of the international community, must now stand up against Russia. Russia and Syria have, in effect, won the war. Um, in Syria, but it is going to be us, the UK, the EU, and the US who are going to pay to rebuild Syria. Um, the Russians can't afford to, and that gives us leverage. And we must now start to be strong and stand up to Russia. Otherwise, we're going to see chemical weapon usage around the world for years to come. And that is absolutely the last thing we need. Hamish de Breton Gordon on today's violence in Syria. <music> Now, as we were hearing in the news, the leading uh, US stock market index has fallen sharply on another day of volatile trading. In fact, uh, let me give you the figures, which I've currently lost, obviously. Uh, It's uh, the worst fall since 2008, 4.6%. It closed down just uh, under an hour ago, uh, 24,345. For those who like to do the things by points, it is, in fact, I think the biggest uh, one-day point fall in history. Uh, The BBC's Yugita LeMay is in New York. The trouble actually started on Friday. So on Friday morning, the Labour Department here in the US released their employment report. It comes out every month. Uh, it was a pretty strong report. So you had 200,000 jobs, more than what was expected. But I think the number that sort of has started all of this is is the number for wage growth. So it showed, this report showed that wages had gone up 2.9% over the last year. This was stronger than what was expected. How does that all fit in? Well, basically... Uh, The anticipation is that if salaries of people are going up, then they will buy more, which in turn will sort of push prices of consumer goods up, which basically means that, you know, inflation will rise. Uh, And to sort of keep that inflation under control, the U.S. Federal Reserve or the American Central Bank, essentially what they'll then do is that they'll have to increase rates. Now, the markets were already expecting that there would be about two to three interest rate hikes this year. But now, because you've had this sort of strong wage growth coming in, the fear is that there will be more rate rises. So this morning, I was at the stock exchange and I was speaking to traders there just trying to understand what is going on. Uh, And they essentially said that, you know, the the worry now is that instead of two to three, you might see as many as four to six interest rate rises. And that's essentially what's led to this sort of slide. You know, we saw it on Friday. Uh, I mean, today at at one point it was like, you know, it it was 700 points down. And then I looked down for a few minutes. I looked back up and it was 1500 points down. Uh, So, you know, that's what what you've sort of seen going on today. You might think that if there's near as damn it full employment and 
uh, wage growth is very, very healthy, that that would mean that the economy would be buzzing and that would be good for a lot of these companies. It doesn't seem to work that way. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the, you know, in a sense, you don't really have that correlation. Uh, it's not a direct correlation between the strength and the shape of the economy and what the stock markets are doing at a particular point. So in this case, for example, a strong jobs report is actually great for the US economy because, you know, wage growth has been a big problem. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you have interest rate rises, uh, the market market doesn't like that. And today, actually, the, the American Central Bank has just got a new chair, Jerome Powell, President Trump's pick for the job. And this sort of underscores the challenge for him because they need to make decisions that will help sustain the growth of the American economy. But at the same time, they've got to do it in a manner that doesn't alarm the stock markets. Yikita Lamai reporting from New York. The other big uh, takeaway from this, of course, is that uh, President Trump has been paying homage to how uh, high the Dow has been rising. Uh, it has, as we've been hearing over the last couple of days, had a bit of a correction. I think that's what they call it politely. That's it from News Hour from me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London. Thanks for your company. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.